God, I thank you that you are a God who seeks us out. I thank you that you care enough to send your son to rescue us and that you care enough to continue to send your spirit to uh, open hearts and minds and help us to know uh, you. Uh, I pray that you would use your word to help us encounter your son Jesus this morning. We pray this asking that you would send the Holy Spirit among us so that we may know you truly. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's a little song that I uh, learned in Sunday school. Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, but uh, the words go like this. Uh, Zacchaeus, and there's hand motions too. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. And then for good measure, it repeated, for I'm going to your house today. Uh, it's a fun little song. You get uh, hand motions and all that. The kids get into it. And you get kind of a mental picture of uh, of a cute little Zacchaeus. He's just a little guy, not very tall at all. And he's climbing up the tree and he gets to see Jesus. And the memorable part of the story for me as a kid was that uh, Zacchaeus is short, right? And so this is good news for those of us who are kind of below average height. Jesus came for short people too. It's a fantastic story. But of course, for the people who were actually there and witnessed this event, it would have been a very different thing. The fact that Zacchaeus was so short was totally insignificant to them. To them, the part about Zacchaeus that was memorable was the fact that he was a tax collector. And so that fact meant that for the people who were there, this isn't a cute little story. This isn't something to kind of make up songs about and do hand motions and stuff. This isn't cute at all. In fact, this is scandalous. It's disgraceful. It's outrageous that Jesus would talk to this man. So if they would have made up a song about Zacchaeus, it probably is not one that we'd be able to repeat in uh, Sunday school or even talk about in church at all. It have probably a few different words uh, to use for Zacchaeus. Uh, this Advent season, we're looking at the life of Jesus and his ministry. We're seeing how he came for each one. And we see him interacting with uh, some of the most unexpected people. And we see that he brings good news that is specific to them. Today we get the story of Zacchaeus, this wee little man. Uh, it's found in Luke chapter 19. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already done that. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, grab a, a Bible from the pew rack if you didn't bring one this morning. Uh, Luke 19 is found on page 1039. Uh, so 1039 in the pew Bibles, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus. We're going to see this in, in two parts, uh, Jesus' initiative here and then the response uh, to that initiative. So we start off by looking at, at what Jesus uh, does to initiate this. Uh, here's how the story starts. Luke 19, starting at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Now, as with the story we looked at last week, and as with some of the previous stories, it's interesting that this is a story that happens along the way. Jesus is in Jerusalem, or in Jericho, but he's just passing through. He's headed to Jerusalem. That's where the real action is going to come. And, and so Jericho is really just one of the places along the way. It's really interesting to note, as you look at Jesus' life, how many of these encounters happen when he's just passing through. There's a lot of ministry that happens this way. But as we look at this particular encounter, it, it looks like the initiative in this story belongs to Zacchaeus. Right? He's the one who takes the initiative. He wants to see Jesus. And so when he's confronted with this obstacle of the crowd, and it's too big for him to be able to see, and he's too short to be able to see over them. Remember, he's a wee little man. Uh, but he's determined enough that he's not allowing that obstacle to get in his way. He's going to find another way of getting to see Jesus. 
And so he's very resourceful. He sees that the way that Jesus is going, there's some trees ahead. So he's going to climb up the trees and he's going to get a better view of Jesus. So Zacchaeus is really being set up kind of as the the main actor in the initial part of this story. There's something about Jesus that is drawing him in. He wants to find out, well, who is this man? What kind of person is he? Why are all the crowds following Jesus? So to some degree, at least, Zacchaeus is seen here as a seeker. He's seeking out Jesus. So enter Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but he gets much more than he bargained for. It looks like Zacchaeus would have been content to just be able to get a, a clear view of Jesus as he was passing by. And yet we see that Jesus has much more in mind here. He stops And remember, there's a whole crowd going through alongside of him, so he's stopping. The whole crowd has to stop alongside of him. He looks up, he sees Zacchaeus, he calls him by name, and he calls him to action. I've got to go to your house. So the initiative of Zacchaeus quickly is overshadowed by the initiative of Jesus. He boldly invites himself over to this man's house. And notice the necessity of the language. He says, I must stay at your house today. He's not saying, may I please come over? And Zacchaeus can, can say, well, no, sorry, my house isn't clean today. You can't come today. Maybe, maybe try again tomorrow when I've had a chance to kind of clean up a little bit. No, he's saying, I must. It is necessary for me to come over your, to your house today. And implicit within this language of necessity is the fact that this is God's plan. God is up to something here in Zacchaeus' life. It's necessary. He must go to his house. Well, Zacchaeus hears this, and he immediately complies. He climbs down from the tree, and he accepts Jesus. He welcomes him and offers him hospitality. And he does so with with great joy. This is a a fantastic turn of events for Zacchaeus. He, He just wanted to get a glimpse to see what kind of a person Jesus was. And now Jesus is going to be his guest. He's going to be able to have him into his home to to feed him a meal. And this is a really big deal because in in the ancient world that the context of the story is, hospitality was incredibly important. Sharing a meal together meant that you were friends. It meant that you accepted someone and welcomed them, that, that you were together alongside of them. And this is exactly the problem. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner Now, to us, the story of Zacchaeus is just a nice little story about Jesus seeing this little short guy and going to his house and and welcoming him and inviting him, but not to the people who were there. See, Jesus has just picked the worst possible guy to go to his house. He's a sinner. He is despised, and Jesus has just implicitly accepted him by accepting hospitality at his house. See, no one liked tax collectors, and for good reason. The, the, the system of the day that the Romans had set up for taxation really uh, allowed people to bid for the position of being a tax collector, and so the highest bidder would be able to uh, collect taxes for Rome, and then they would tax the people and kind of collect uh, on that. So the problem, though, was that tax collectors had a lot of leeway in how much they actually charged people. So it was expected, of course, that they would earn a living by collecting more taxes than they actually passed on to Rome. But the problem was the whole system was uh, hard to regulate. It was really ripe for abuse. And everyone knew it, but there was nothing that anyone could do about it. And of course, none of us likes to pay taxes. I don't like to pay taxes. You don't like to pay taxes, even in a system like ours, where you can look at percentages, and if you dig deep enough, you can find out why you're actually being taxed a certain amount. 
But imagine living under a system like this where it's more or less arbitrary. It's just up to the person who's actually collecting taxes how much they charge you. So say it's December and your particular tax guy wants some extra cash to be able to buy more presents for his kids. Well, he can just charge you more. So even though he charged you $10 in tax for your groceries last week, this week he's going to charge you $20. The next guy comes along, he might charge him $40. No one likes it, but if you don't do it, you've got the mighty Roman Empire to answer to. There's simply nothing that can be done. You can imagine how infuriating the situation would be. And so the stigma that was attached to this profession of tax collecting was enormous. It's, it's hard for us to really uh, wrap our minds around this. There's, there's not really a good modern-day equivalent of how stigmatized this particular profession would have been. You could think of like you know, loan sharks or, or payday loan people or, or pawn shop owners, something like that. But even that doesn't get at the full kind of uh, despisement that went around this profession. And it gets worse. See, for... From the perspective of uh, the Jewish people, these weren't just crooks who were cheating people out of their money, but they were also traitors. See, they were collecting taxes for Rome, and, and Rome was the occupying foreign power of the day that every true Jewish person knew had no business being in Israel. Israel was the land that God had given His people as their home, and, and here is Rome ruling over them, taking their money. It's not right, and everyone knows it. And then these fellow Jews, people like Zacchaeus, are turning their backs on their own people. They're exploiting them all while supporting the enemy. They're robbers and they're traitors. That's tax collectors. And everyone saw them this way. The, the Jews would excommunicate them because they saw that they were robbers. And, and even the Romans and the Greeks lumped them together with beggars and thieves and robbers. And here's Zacchaeus, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. And in case we missed the point, Luke says, oh, by the way, he was rich. Well, how do you think he got rich? It's obvious. He exploited the system for his own personal gain. He amassed a large wealth, amount of wealth because of his exploitation of his own people using the Roman system to do it. So when he tries to see Jesus, you can bet that the people around him in the crowd didn't go out of their way to try to help him be able to see Jesus. And yet Jesus comes along, and he stops to look up at one of the most despised men in town, and he tells them that he's going to stay with him. He's saying that he accepts him, that he wants to be Zacchaeus' friend. Now, needless to say, the crowd is not impressed. They like Jesus, they like his miracles, they like his teaching, they like all that stuff, but he has just picked the worst possible person. I mean, how could he do this? This is irresponsible of him. And notice that everyone in the crowd shares the opinion. Verse 7, all the people saw this and muttered. There's no one in the crowd who's on Zacchaeus' side. Oh, yeah, it's great that Jesus stopped and talked to him. No, everyone sees that this man is a sinner. He's a traitor. He's a thief. Jesus has no business going to his house. And yet this is exactly the point. He needs to be rescued. Jesus sees that this is a lost man, and Jesus came for people like him. It's like you take a, a walk out on the, the break wall in the summertime, beautiful summer day, you walk all the way in, you're sitting there at the base of the lighthouse, just looking out at the vast expanse of Lake Michigan, enjoying a beautiful summer day. And then all of a sudden you notice this kind of blur at the corner of your eyes, and this guy in, a, in a, a swimming suit runs past you, jumps off the end of the pier, does a big cannonball into the lake. And he swims back over to the, to the ladder, he climbs up, and then he, again, he takes off and just jumps into the lake, a bigger cannonball this time. He's laughing, he's having a good time. Now maybe you're a rule follower, 
And you realize he's not supposed to be doing that. There's things posted all over the place. He, he shouldn't be doing that. And maybe you're a really safety-conscious person. You think, it's not smart. Lake Michigan's a big lake. There's a lot of uh, currents and things like that. He can get in trouble a lot, uh, really quickly. And then you notice something happening here. You notice that that swimmer seems to be having a little bit of a struggle this time getting back to uh, the ladder. Rather than getting closer, it looks like he's actually drifting a little bit farther away from the pier. And you notice that, that he kind of, his head goes under a couple times. You say, oh, something bad's happening here. This guy's in distress. He needs help. So what do you do? Well, you could say, well, that's his own fault. He shouldn't have jumped in. That's why we have rules. We have rules like this because you shouldn't have done that. He did it, and he's suffering the consequences. Right? No one would do that. No, no one in their right mind would, would do that. They would say, no, you, you help. You go grab a life ring. You call 911. You do something, but you take action immediately to help that guy because here's another human, another person made in the image of God, and they need help desperately. You go and you do everything you can to save them. That's what Jesus is doing here. Yes, the man is a sinner. That's the very reason that Jesus is interacting with him. That's the very reason he's accepting hospitality because this guy is lost. All of the reasons that the crowd hates the man and thinks that Jesus shouldn't be spending time with him is exactly why Jesus needs to be spending time with him. Jesus came for people like him. And this is what God does all throughout the Bible. He takes those who are least deserving the worst possible people, and he goes after them, and he brings them back to himself. This is what God does, and it's what he promises that he will do. There's a great chapter in Ezekiel chapter 34 where God speaks as the shepherd of his people, Israel. And this is what he says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And a little later, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. See, what is incredible about God is that he doesn't reject lost sheep. He doesn't reject people like Zacchaeus who really deserved to be rejected, but instead he goes after them and he brings them back to himself, even someone who's a traitor, even someone who is a thief. This is what Jesus is doing. He's seeking after this lost man. And the great joy of the church, the followers of Jesus, is to be able to join in on the rescue mission of God. Jesus will say at the end of this section of text that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what we get to be part of. And, and the story of Zacchaeus changes our whole perspective on what that means. That means we don't sit here in church and say, well, if those people really wanted to get saved, then they would come here. They would come to us. And we don't get to make judgments on who is a better candidate for being a follower of Jesus and who is a worse candidate on being a follower of Jesus. Like, well, that, that person, yeah, they're a pretty good person. They'd make a great Christian. Or that person, well, yeah, I think they're kind of outside. We're just going to leave them alone. We're going to go after that person. We don't get to do that because we see God's heart for those who are far away from him. He takes the most outrageous person, Zacchaeus, a traitor, a thief. No one in their right mind would accept this man. And yet Jesus does. That's how much God cares for people who are far away from him. He sends his own son to seek them out and to rescue them. And we as a church get to be part of that whole thing. See, the whole point is that people right now are lost apart from a relationship with God. 
And Jesus calls us as his church to extend his mission of seeking and saving the lost, of pointing people to the Savior, Jesus. This is God's heart for those who are far from him. And it is the joy-filled mission of the church to be part of that. Remember what these red ornaments are for, right? These are for our ones, the people that God has put on our hearts that right now are far from him. These are people who need Jesus. And, and on our hearts right now are these friends and family members, coworkers, classmates, and we're praying for them because of this whole reason. Right now, they're lost without him. We're going to do everything we can to be part of God's work and bringing them back to him. Jesus goes and he seeks out those who are lost. Notice the response now. And remember, the crowd is not impressed. Jesus has done the wrong thing here. He has accepted this man who is a traitor and a thief. He has acted in a totally uh, irresponsible way. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Well, hang on. What's this about? Something has happened that is massive in this story. Something happens to Zacchaeus as he encounters Jesus. Suddenly, he gets that what he has been doing is wrong. He gets that his lifestyle has been sinful. He gets that he has defrauded people and cheated them to gain his wealth. He gets that the way he thinks about money and the way he acts with his money has to change. And so he takes radical action half of everything I own, half of my wealth, half of my estate, gone. Now, put yourself in his shoes. Can you imagine this? I mean, most of us would say, okay, well, from now on, I'm going to give like 10% of my income. We'll just not talk about the stuff previous. We'll just kind of have a fresh start from here. But he's saying, no, no, no. He's going to give, and he's going to give big. Write a check, cash out the, the mutual fund, sell the stocks. Everyone that I have defrauded, everyone that I've cheated, and of course he has cheated and defrauded people four times as much as I've cheated them. He's just writing checks, sending them off. I mean, this is, this is massive. A, a radical transformation has happened to Zacchaeus. Jesus tells us what has happened here. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus. He is one of those lost sheep that, that God is sending his son after to bring back to himself. He has been saved. How do we know? How do we know he's been rescued? Because his life has been transformed. Right? You know a thief is no longer a thief when they stop stealing and instead they start giving generously. That's what's happened here. Zacchaeus has encountered Jesus and it has transformed his life. Salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus' failures and faults didn't stop Jesus from associating with him and accepting him and saying he wanted to be his friend. But Jesus didn't leave him in those failures and faults. Encountering Jesus showed Zacchaeus a better way. You see, that's the mission of Jesus. He came to seek and to save the lost. Both parts are needed. He doesn't just seek him and then leave him there. That would be like search without rescue. Be like going back to our, our lighthouse rescue scene and, and you call 911 and the, and the rescue squad comes up real fast, running up to the end and, and, and you say, well, there he is. And they say, okay, we found him. There's the drowning guy. There's the guy who's in trouble. And then they just leave him. Well, we've done our job here. We, we found him. Well, of course not, right? It's, it's seeking out and it's saving. That's what Jesus does. He seeks out the lost and he saves them from their lostness. 
So first he takes the initiative to engage Zacchaeus, this traitor and thief, and then he changes Zacchaeus' life so he's no longer a traitor and a thief. Now some of us struggle with the first part of this story, if we're honest. The fact that Jesus would take the initiative and, and prioritize ministering to a really bad person like Zacchaeus, if we dare to admit it, it kind of bothers us. I mean, surely there would have been someone else in the crowd who was more deserving of Jesus' attention than Zacchaeus. I mean, any number of people in the crowd would have been better than him. And maybe we know better than to voice it out loud or admit it, but in truth, our attitude is that like the crowd. Why him? Why that guy? He is the least deserving person around, and we struggle with this. Others of us struggle with the second part of this. We want Jesus to accept us, failures and all, without demanding anything from us. We want Jesus to stay at our house and to welcome us, and then we want to keep exploiting others through unfair taxes so that we can keep buying the nice things that we really want. So I want Jesus, but I don't want to change. It just doesn't work that way. See, when we truly encounter Jesus, a radical transformation happens. His radical acceptance of sinners is the first part of a rescue effort that ends with radical transformations. The glorious part about the mission of Jesus is that it doesn't matter how bad you are or all the things that you have done in your life that are really terrible things. It doesn't matter if all the good people see you as the wrong kind of person who doesn't deserve the attention or the love of God. Jesus doesn't see you like that at all. He sees you as one who is loved by God. He came for each one, no matter what the background is. But the reason that this is so glorious is that Jesus doesn't leave you there. He completes the rescue. He shows you that there is a better way. See, the reality is when we are lost, when we are apart from God, we're stuck. We're seeking joy and pleasure and fulfillment in things that will never be able to truly satisfy us. And we keep trying to, to fill that empty hole, and yet it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. The reality is that we need help, and Jesus offers that help. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and when we truly encounter Him, our lives will never be the same. An older pastor put it like this, if you meet Jesus and your life doesn't change, then you've met a different Jesus. So here's the deal. People like Jesus, not, not everyone, but, but most people, if you ask them what their impression of Jesus is, they would have a positive impression, right? He's a wise teacher. He's on the side of the poor and the oppressed. He calls out religious hypocrites. I mean, what's not to love? But admiration from a distance doesn't do anyone any good. I mean, this story with Zacchaeus could have gone very differently if his plan had succeeded. If he climbs up his tree and he watches Jesus pass by, he gets a good glimpse of who Jesus is and Jesus keeps going, what does he end up with? The same as before. He's still lost. Or if Jesus interacts with him and, and he goes to his house, he stays at his house, and, and Zacchaeus continues to rob and exploit others, what does that mean for him? The same thing. There, there's been no salvation coming to his house. He's still lost. Jesus says salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house because meeting Jesus has changed everything for Zacchaeus. Encountering Jesus made him realize not only that he was lost, but also that salvation is possible, and his life was changed forever. The same could be true of us. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. When we really encounter him, it means that our life will change forever. 
And let me give just a word of caution here. This doesn't mean that we're going to become perfect people. If the standard is perfection, then every single one of us fails to attain that. And so the point here isn't to uh, make you uh, totally filled with fear, but it's to make the point that those who meet Jesus will never be the same. So what if you look at your life and you realize that that's not your story? You look at your life and you realize there's a lot of stuff that is a mess there. Maybe you've been in church all your life or maybe you're just coming back and, and you say, well, I, I don't see a lot of change there. What do you do if your experience is not like Zacchaeus' experience? Where you feel like you know Jesus, at least to some degree, but, but your life really isn't different as a result. What do you do with that? Well, the answer isn't to give up or despair. The answer is that you have to meet this Jesus. See, these stories like Zacchaeus's and then the woman at the well, these other stories, they're, they're pointing us to the fact that Jesus is amazing. Meeting him is life transforming. We have to meet this Jesus. So how do we encounter him today? We can't just climb up a sycamore tree and, and wait for Jesus to pass by and hope that he welcomes us into his home. How, how do we encounter Jesus today? There are two things that are absolutely crucial for this. Reading God's word and God's church. They are crucial elements of this. Reading scripture is one of the most important ways that we encounter Jesus. See, this is where we, we find out who God really is, and, and it corrects our, our wrong notions of who He is. See, we have all sorts of things that we think are true about God, that we think are th- true about Jesus, but it's when we actually open up God's Word and see what God shows of Himself to us that we begin to actually encounter God, that we know Him, and that that changes our lives. This is a huge deal. And we've got two opportunities coming up this year that are really going to try to press into experiencing Jesus this year. And the first one is a, a scripture reading challenge that we're going to start in the new year. Uh, January 1st is a Sunday this year. And we want to start off this year right, getting into the Word and reading scripture, reading all the way through in a year. And maybe you've tried this before and you've kind of, you're not sure where to start. We've got a, a little um, app for your phone and we've got a little bookmark as well that makes it easy for you to have a path going forward here. So if you look out in the foyer, you'll be able to find one of these bookmarks if you want to do it the less techie way. There's also instructions in your uh, bulletin for how to get the app on your phone, and you can do it the, the more techie way if you like to be able to check off checkboxes and things like that. Maybe you have tried this before. You've tried a Bible reading plan, and you just get stuck. You, know, you get somewhere in Leviticus, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this anymore. One of the great things about this um, app that we're using it is, is it has videos along the way to help you understand the big picture of each book and the big picture of how it fits within the storyline of the Bible. I've been using this in my own uh, time uh, with Christ over the past couple months, and it's been great to see these overviews. You really get a sense of, of, of the big storyline of the Bible, of what God is really trying to communicate through His Word. And then the other nice thing about this is doing it together. If you get stuck, you can ask another person to help you out. Well, well what did you think about this? Or what is this all about? This could be one of the most important things that you do this year. We're challenging our, our whole church family to get into the Word this year, to get into Scripture, to read the Bible and find out to really know God, to really encounter Jesus. But here's the other thing. We're not designed to do this alone. And that's why the church is such an important part of our experience of encountering Jesus. See, we are made to live in community, and a Christian community is one of the ways that, that God uses to shape us 
and to form us, to make us more like His Son, Jesus. And so again, at the beginning of the year, I want to challenge you to, to sign up for a life group. We would love to have every single person in our church be a part of a life group. Not because we want you to be busy, not because we want to fill your calendar, but we believe that real life change happens in these close relationships intentionally built around discipling one another and growing up to follow Jesus uh, together. See, we can come and worship on Sunday mornings, but there's a lot of life that happens between one Sunday and the next. And it's easy to come to church, to come to worship service, and to just kind of get into consumer mode, where you just kind of sit back and you watch and, and you kind of accept what's going on here. We realize that the call to follow Jesus is an everyday life kind of a reality. And so it's as we're getting into Scripture individually, as we're getting into God's Word together in community, living in uh, deep relationships, this is what God uses to grow us and to develop us as followers of His Son. See, if nothing else, we have to realize that, that this Jesus changes everything. We see how he interacts with people from a whole breadth of spectrum of life, and he brings good news that's specific to each one. He can change your life, and that's what we're working toward. We realize that Jesus is the greatest treasure in our entire existence, and we want to know him more and experience life with him. See, there is good news because Jesus, the Son of God, came to seek and to save the lost, people like us. So whatever category it fits over us, whether we're rich or poor, whether people would consider us a sinner or a saint or an insider or an outsider, success or failure, it doesn't matter what category of life we come from. Jesus is for us. He came for us. And when we actually meet him, when we truly encounter the real Jesus, our lives will be changed forever. Let's pray toward that end. God, there are people here in all different experiences. Some of us have been in church forever. Some of us have had deep, vibrant experiences of uh, life following your son, Jesus. Some of us are totally new to this. We have no idea what they would even mean. It sounds odd to us. We don't know what that would look like. I pray that this Christmas season, even, even today, even this week, you would be sending your spirit to open up our eyes and minds to see who Jesus really is, that we would hear the gospel with fresh eyes, be able to experience your son. And God, I pray that you would change our lives as a result. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.